For the week of April 23rd, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Hello and welcome. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media in Washington, D.C. Always happy to be with you. But I'm sad to say that my co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah, are not joining me this week. Yes, I am right in the middle of writing a short book, and I have totally isolated myself. So far, you're actually the only ones who I've let in my presence. You'll hear much more about that book project in a future episode. But for now, I want to air some conversations on solar that took place over the last week that I think are worth listening to. So first up, uh, last Friday, Jigger appeared on MSNBC to talk with Chris Hayes about what else? Our favorite topic, solar net metering. That's right, national reporters and pundits outside of traditional clean tech journalism are picking up on political battles over solar. It appears the industry is finally being perceived as a real threat. So here's Jigger's interview with Chris Hayes. If you don't know Hayes, he's a very liberal guy, so you'll hear that in the way the story is framed. We all know how much conservatives, particularly red state conservatives and statehouse legislatures, hate taxes. So you might be surprised to learn of a tax bill that sailed through the Oklahoma state legislature. It passed by an 83 to 5 margin in the House with no debate, 63 Republicans and 20 Democratic votes in favor. It's expected to be signed by Republican Governor Mary Fallon. And it taxes something that Republicans tend not to like very much, solar power. It allows utility companies to impose a surcharge on customers who install solar powers or small wind turbines. Here's the deal. If you install solar on your roof in most places in the U.S., including Oklahoma, there are many times where you generate more power than you use, and you can sell that power back to the grid, often at retail prices. Utility companies do not like that. They say solar power users aren't paying their, fit, paying their fair share of infrastructure costs. So utility companies have lobbied state legislatures in plenty of states across the country, including Oklahoma, to tax you. You see, utility companies call it a fee or a supercharge, but it's basically a monthly tax. And what does that do? It makes solar less appealing because there is no bigger threat to utility companies in the world than cheap, efficient solar energy. It blows the doors off the whole system. And look at what is happening to solar. Solar production costs per watt have been dropping and continue to drop. Someone is installing a solar power system in the U.S. every four minutes. That is why conservative groups like ALEC and industry groups have been pushing legislation from California to Maine to tax people who are using solar. Joining me now, Jigger Shah. He's the founder of Sun Edison, solar energy provider, also author of Creating Climate Wealth. So, do the utility companies have a point here? Are you a moocher? If you put solar panels on your roof and you sell some of that power back, you're just using an infrastructure you don't pay for. Well, thanks for having me on. I think what's interesting here is that the solar industry has grown so fast that we've just snuck up on the utility companies, and they're trying to figure out which arguments will resonate, because in Oklahoma specifically, what you didn't uh, lead in with is that they've raised rates by over 20 percent. Oklahomans have actually had the fastest growing electricity rates since, 19, since 2010. And so if you... So you're talking about a state that's seen the highest growth in their electricity bills in the entire country since 2010. That's right. And so if you are suffering from in income inequality and other things, then that amount of money actually is material to you. Right. And what are your options? self-generation of power. So if you're retired and you're on a fixed uh, Social Security benefits plan, well, if your electricity rates are going up faster than inflation, the only thing you can do to solve that problem is to fix them using solar power. And the utility companies see that as a huge threat. Absolutely. I mean, the thing is, is the whole concept of creating climate wealth is that the fact that oil prices are up 250 percent, the fact that electricity prices are up 50 percent since 2000 across the country means that all of these technologies that we invented in America after the Arab oil crisis are now cost effective to deploy and the utilities are scared out of their mind. Why is it a threat to the utility companies specifically for people to be generating their own power and selling it back to the grid. Like, what about that challenges utility companies? Utility companies are still going to, you know, make money coming and going. They're going to sell power. They still own the grid. Like, what, what, what is their beef with it? So utility companies make money by investing money. And they choose not to invest money in solar, not to invest money in energy efficiency. So both of those things are a threat because it reduces the total amount of electricity people buy from them. But they're not making money on both sides of the deal. Now, they could choose to start investing in solar power and in energy efficiency, but they simply choose not to. 
What about this argument you hear from conservatives all the time that solar is basically this kind of hippie affectation, that it, it, it is essentially a welfare case, that it only is economical with enough tax credits and subsidies and cylindra, yada, yada, yada. Is it, is it, uh, can it compete in an open market right now? Well, what's important to note is that solar power prices have come down. So today we actually can work without tax credits. And many solar advocates are actually advocating that we retire solar tax credits by 2016 so that we can actually bring in a lot more uh, investors who can't take tax credits. Today, if my parents want to invest in solar power, they can't do it because they're not allowed by law to take the tax credits, whereas they can if they invest in oil and gas. Wait, explain that. Why not? So there's this this notion of active-passive loss rules, which means if you're a doctor, which my dad is, uh -huh. you cannot use those tax credits against your income from your job. You uh -huh. can only use it against, let's say, rental income or other things that you have. But if you invest in an oil and gas drilling rig, you can use those tax credits against your job. It's another loophole the oil and gas so industry the, the tax system, The tax system works so that you can take those tax losses if you're investing in, in fossil fuels, but not if you're investing in solar right now. That's right. And so what's happened is, is that, you know, the company I founded, Sun Edison, is now doing a yield co, which is a publicly traded vehicle that anyone can invest in and get a dividend yield owning solar. And that's coming out in the next few months. And what you're finding is, is that that vehicle is a really good vehicle for everyone to invest in. And it doesn't need tax credits because the interest rates will come down so far for solar that it will be so cost-effective for Oklahomans to move. That's why the Oklahoma utilities are so worried about this. So how scalable is this? I mean, how, how plausible is it that we're going to see a significant portion of, of power being generated by solar in the next 10, 15 years? So Ray Kurzweil, who is the famous, you know, sort of exponential futurist. growth futurist, right. is now saying that by 2025, the majority of our power in the United States is going to come from solar. That's how confident 2025? Is, uh, that the growth rates. And in Australia, for instance, they've gone to one million homes now that have solar, only a population of 22 million people. So if the same thing happens wow. here that happened in Australia, we'd have over 10 million homes. We only have 500,000 right now. Wow, amazing. Jigger Shaw from Sun Edison, thank you so much. Again, that was Jigger appearing on All In with Chris Hayes last Friday. So our second conversation comes from our own Green Tech Media Solar Summit in Arizona last week. At the opening of the conference, I sat down with some of the top executives in the solar industry to ask, has solar reached the mainstream? To start off, I referenced an earlier presentation from our VP of Research, Shale Khan. He pointed to four factors that may help us determine if solar has in fact reached the point of no return. They include utilities taking solar seriously, check, the financial sector taking solar seriously, check. Solar becoming a primary source of new capacity, check. And solar becoming competitive without fickle incentives. Getting there in some markets, but mostly no. I turn to my panelists to hear their thoughts on that list. So joining us are Tom Doyle. He is the president and CEO of NRG Solar. We have Tongi Sarah, who is the chief operating officer of Solar City. Diana Drysdale, who is the president of PSEG Power Ventures, and Howard Wenger, who is the president of Regions for Sun Power, all offer uh, deep uh, experience in the solar industry, and I think it's going to be a great conversation. So let me start off with the theme of the discussion, and that is what factors would lead you to believe that solar is actually approaching as a mainstream technology? What factors um, on the positive, and what makes you skeptical about making that conclusion. Tom, let's start with you. Um, all right, the way you've defined mainstream, um, <coughs> absolutely. I mean, you can check all the boxes uh, with the possible exception of the first one. So let's work them backward. Is it financeable? Clearly. I mean, it depends on the technology. But um, largely, solar is, uh, is and has been financeable for years. Um, are the utilities paying attention? Absolutely. For better or worse, the utilities are paying attention. Um, what were your other two? Um, needs to be competitive without fickle incentives. Yeah, we'll, put, we'll, we'll take that last. <laughs> and then um, your one... And primary source of new electricity. Yeah, so again, I think it's, it, I mean, it's never, on a standalone basis, solar's never going to be the answer. And so I think solar is absolutely going to be the answer as a component of um, a larger uh, energy solution. Um, with respect to incentives, I mean, the way we look at the business... We never want to go into a business, particularly one that's a growth story like this is for NRG, 
um, if that business uh, and the, and the uh, sustainability of that business relies upon incentives. And so, you know, we've always looked at trying to find a way to drive down cost so that it's a business that without incentives um, can not only survive but thrive. So um, from our perspective, um, that absolutely will be the future of solar. I mean, at what point do you think past 2016? Again, um, I mean, it's regional. We think there's 12 states now where solar is really interesting, um, even without the incentive component. Um, and I'm not, I don't want to get into the international piece because, again, that's where I think it's a very interesting other discussion. So I'll just yeah, I'll hold yeah. back on that. And I want to talk to Howard about the international piece. Um, Tongi, how about you on the, the residential commercial side? What, what factors would you need to see to make that conclusion that solar is actually becoming a mainstream technology? Yeah, so we, we, um, we did a survey of uh, a national survey, not just the solar states, across the U.S. And uh, this is sort of an unbiased, statistical relevant survey. And we found that 62% of uh, surveyors would like solar on their home. Um, so I thought that was a pretty interesting stat in suggesting that it is, it is a, there's clearly a, a mainstream level of adoption to that. Um, it's clearly financeable. We've put together a couple of asset-backed securitizations. So uh, you know, to your point, I think it, it has been and it's continued to be uh, financeable. Um, and then I, I agree with Tom, and there's, there's 12 states, at least 12 states, there weren't 15 states, but there's at least 12 states that are extremely interesting for solar. Mm. Um, so I, I violently agree with that statement. Um, I think the, the thing that we um, sort of somewhat provocatively, the, the, uh, the thing that I think will, will, will clearly put in my mind in terms of it will be mainstream is when you've got magazines like Elle or Vogue uh, or those types of publications that start having um, solar as, uh, as, um, as, as, as uh, in their pages. Uh, once you start seeing that, I think that's going to be the next item, and I think we should... Uh, we should challenge ourselves here as a uh, as room in making that happen. If you think about you know some of the big success stories and what happens companies like Tom's um, or those types of companies who had sort of massive emerging growth, it was because they 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 got quickly adopted into some of those magazines. So that's kind of what I'm looking forward to seeing. So the public opinion piece, I mean, it's very clear in poll after poll, people like solar, people like renewable energy, but in practice, does that really warrant um, that conclusion? In, in that. You know, I'm sure if you pulled everybody in this room, they'd want to take a rocket ride to the moon, but that doesn't mean that they're actually going to do that. Uh, so, so actually, I'm not sure that's right. Um, I can tell you the, uh, um, I don't think that's right. Uh, but the, no, people aren't adventurous. But no, look, the other point is, look, solar, you can get it at home, you can get it at home Depot, you can get it at Best Buy. It's kind of become a bit of a, it's easy to get. Um, it's very, very simple. There's no down payment. Um, it's hard not to, um, not to want it if your neighbor has it. I think what we're seeing also something, which is another reason I think we characterize it as mainstream is, um, is penetration of neighborhoods. Once you've got a certain density in a neighborhood, um, the neighbors want it. And it's pretty often that we see, you know, cul-de-sacs, in, especially in California, where you've got cul-de-sac, and um, especially in the East Bay in California, there's a bunch of places where, um, you know, everybody has it except for the renter um, who rents the house and can't, for, because of financing reasons, get someone in his house, but really would want it. Um, so I, I do think that we've reached the point where um, we can call it mainstream, yes. Okay. Diana, how about you from a power plant development and acquisition perspective? Well, mainstream to me is, first of all, look at what industry it's in. is in the power sector. And I wear a lot of hats in the power sector, and I'll talk about three of them here. But it becomes mainstream when it becomes an everyday regular focus from a strategic perspective for our company. So one of the subsidiaries in the company that I run is our utility-scale, market-driven uh, investment company that invests in large-scale solar projects. So we've deployed about a half a billion dollars in the last little while there. One of the other companies is obviously we're a, a, a very large a New Jersey-based utility company. And the conversations that go on on the utility side are sort of twofold. How do we deal with the impact on the grid and the impacts we're talking about with you know, spreading the fixed costs of the, the, the wire system over fewer customers? Remember, those folks that are net metering are using that wire system, and they're not paying for it. And so the, there is this sort of how do you deal with that kind of inherent um, sort of inequity that's going on there. And then, you know, how do we get involved to make sure that we can facilitate a good, clean transition and, and all the right conversations? Um, and at the same time, we're investing in our utility as well. We've invested close to a billion dollars in solar on the utility side and rate base too. And then the other hat I wear, which is one that, um, despite what was said a little while ago, doesn't scare me too much, we do have a 209 megawatt um, 
fossil fuel plant on Oahu. And we're doing very well, thank you, but the duck is alive and well, and it is difficult to manage around the duck. So our our plant is cycling at just an unprecedented amount. And the way that gets dealt with, we still need to be there for the times when the solar is not, you know, the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing and we still have to serve the customers that, that need that power. And it, it gets expensive and things are getting more and more expensive in terms of the impacts of cycling those units. And so, you know, we, we have these conversations every single day and we are embracing the technology. We're not sitting, you know, saying we're a 110-year-old utility and we want everything to be the same way. That's not it at all. But we're trying to figure out how to make it work all across those, those three pieces of our business. Howard, how do those factors change internationally? Before I answer your question on international, um, from my point of view on the domestic side, solar's not mainstream yet. And, and consumers are going to decide. Um, when the average consumer can buy solar and it's affordable and it's easy to get, you can go online and in five minutes you can sign up for solar energy and you can get it delivered within a week, then, that, then it's mainstream. And I think it's not just for... Um, if you go to Hawaii, which I've been on vacation on business, it's a great place, solar's everywhere. And you, visually it looks mainstream there. But there's still a lot of rooftop that's empty and uh, a lot of parking lots that don't have solar. So I think we have a long way to go, actually, to make solar mainstream. And when more than 50% of the states in the country have solar on a DG side that's affordable, uh, with or without subsidy, and it's easy to get for the average consumer, then I would call it mainstream. So we're, at, we're still at the beginning. Uh, internationally, it's a similar story. I mean... Japan was the leader for many years. I mean, when you look 20 years ago, Japan had a very aggressive solar policy. Um, then they, they lost their lead, then Fukushima happened, and it's just gone off scale in Japan. Uh, there's, there's so much more uh, demand than, than supply in, J- in Japan, and it's the second largest market in the world. So the top three markets, China, Japan, U.S., comprise more than 50% of uh, the demand in the world. And you could argue that with policy, you can, you can definitely get there. You can make solar mainstream. I think that's the key linchpin to this question is how does policy, energy policy, factor into the equation? So how has that changed? So historically, developers have rushed from country to country as feed-in tariffs or other uh, lucrative incentive programs are developed and then swiftly rolled back or phased down. And... Um, now, you know, SunPower is looking at the Latin American market, unsubsidized markets. You see some of the other uh, European markets that have cooled down. Um, developers are taking a different approach. People are not rushing around in the same way. It's changed a lot. I mean, there, there have been a lot of rushes, and there still are some, rush, there's some rushing happening in China. There's mm-hmm. rushing happening in Japan. And we've, we've gotten our... Um, uh, we, we've faced some challenges ourselves uh, in international markets like Italy. We went big in Italy. Uh, we rushed there. Uh, this was going back you know, three or four years ago. And then overnight, the policy changed in Italy, and we had a lot of stranded assets, and we had to let go a lot of great people in our main office. We had over 150 people in Rome. So what's changed, I think, today, things have changed where... Uh, I think governments and are, are being more thoughtful about policy deployment. And I also think that there are certain dynamics, like in Latin America you mentioned, where uh, we can just compete directly with the grid. We're building the largest merchant power plant, PV power plant right now in the world, 70 megawatts in Chile. It's completely merchant, meaning we're competing directly with on-peak uh, power against fossil power mm-hmm. and hydropower in Chile. And uh, we're being very thoughtful about how we're going into markets, and we're not going in and out. We are setting up offices, and I think other uh, industry players are doing the same thing. They're being very thoughtful about being in a country and being there for the long term and looking at the market fundamentals of each country. And there's some really exciting things happening. We have a 6-gigawatt-plus international power plant pipeline um, and that's spread uh, across the world. So it's, it is a really dynamic, interesting market. Let's talk about business models. 
a lot of activity in downstream solar in terms of vertical integration. Solar City acquired Paramount for customer acquisition, uh, Zep Solar and Racking, and everyone's looking at this vertical integration approach, asking, is it the most effective way of doing things? Tongi, what is your opinion on the meaning of these acquisitions and what you're trying to do as a company in downstream solar? Sure. Um, so there's, there's two reasons. Um, one is um, what, what uh, Howard's alluding to, which is you really want to get to a point where you can sell in the morning and install in the afternoon. Um, that's really what you want to get to in residential solar distributed. Um, and in order to be able to do that, you really need to have all your technology systems speak to each other. So you need to have your sales systems and your sales approach, your software, your people speak to your design, speak to your installation, speak to your logistics and supply chain all as one integrated package. Um, if you can't do that and you're got, you have to um, um, outsource part of it, um, it becomes very, you, you can, but it's very, very difficult to do in a way that, that is highly, highly effective. So that's the first reason, which is from a customer experience, it's just a much better customer experience if you have, um, if you have everything under one umbrella and it's integrated. Um, the, the second reason, and, and I think we're seeing, um, there's, there's a couple of other acquisitions, um, you know, including Sunrun to sort of validate that point. Um, the, the other reason, I think, is all about costs, um, which is uh, we, we want to make sure that we eliminate margin stacking from our business. Um, and so a little bit by definition, if you have um, you know, a bunch of different overheads, uh, a bunch of different margins um, across the value chain, then, then each little piece takes a couple cents here and there, and before you know it, it's material. And so by vertically integrating, we're taking out costs, um, and I think we've been reasonably successful at doing that. Um, the ZEP acquisition obviously was... Was, was highly, highly successful um, as it allowed to take us a bunch of costs out of the racking software, uh, racking hardware, um, and uh, we're, we're very happy with it. You came from Vivint before mm-hmm. going to Solar City, and so you've been at the two uh, biggest installation companies in the U.S. What is the difference between how Vivint operates and Solar City operates? It's a good question. Um, so we started Vivint Solar two years ago, um, um, did reasonably well, started to Blackstone. Um, we, we put in place a bunch of systems there that, that actually um, work along the lines of which I just suggested. And, and Solar City, um, we, we, we were in many ways copying Solar City. Um, and so, so the, the way the two companies operate is, is um, Solar City is focused exclusively on solar. Um, and that makes a big difference, obviously, to, to consumers. Uh, we don't, it's not a, uh, it's not part of a business. It's all the business. Um, and so from a technology perspective, all the resources are focused on one thing. Um, so that makes a, makes a big difference to the consumer. Tom, we can't talk about... We, we should probably talk about the uh, NRG acquisition of roof diagnostics, solar. Um, how does a, a power producer like NRG view... Uh, the importance of vertically integrating and not just investing in big power plants, but in f- deep down in the residential installation. Well, just if, Roof if Diagnostics I could, yeah. being one of the top ten solar installers in the country. Right. I mean, I, I don't know if you've followed everything that we've done recently, but NRG, you know, we recently acquired Edison Missing Energy, so now we have over two gigawatts of wind, and um, we used to be solely focused on solar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we looked at the solar space. You know, we like to think that we took advantage of the first mover opportunity in the United States from an equity ownership perspective, and now it's gotten very crowded there. Um, when we look at the DG space, the distributed solar space, we still feel it's a very fragmented market. Uh, I, think our, I think the largest market share is about 7%, and so that's a market you're going to see us play more and more in, but we're going to be very selective about what we go after in that space. And, and then on the residential space... Um, you know, we see the, the first mover uh, was Solar City, and um, we'd love to give these guys a run for their money there in that space because it is such an important space for our business. I mean, we have 3 million retail customers already, and so uh, the residential customer and the retail link from our perspective just make a tremendous amount of sense. And that retail link, I mean, you're working with Comcast on delivering electricity services in Pennsylvania um, through Comcast, through a bundled offer. Um, now, you know, potentially adding solar into the mix. What does that mean from a customer relationship perspective? We're starting to see these mm-hmm. services come together, and solar is you know, looking to be an important part of that. Well, the one thing we, again, I think we see the world slightly differently than a lot of people do from a renewable perspective. We 
absolutely see a future in, in a solar-led microgrid future. And so, um, and what, what brought us to that conclusion, we have uh, a strategy called uh, a, a single-brand multi-site, and um, Starwood's a perfect example of that. We start talking to um, these big-name companies who have multiple sites, and we start talking to them about putting solar on their sites, and very quickly, that solar discussion leads to something more than that. When we go out into the Caribbean or anywhere where diesel generating is used to generate electricity, um, it's a much better answer if we acquire those diesel gensets, which NRG is comfortable doing, bring in renewable technologies, drop down the overall cost of that product, that goes back to, to the off-taker, that comes back to us. So that's an example of how we see the relationship changing with the customer kind of in the CNI space. But we see microgrids, they can grow up. You know, they could, they could eventually power an island like Hawaii, and they can grow down. I mean, they can be residential-focused. And we want to make sure that we have placed ourselves in a position to take advantage of growing both up and down in that space. Diana, from the regulated utility perspective, do you think about disruption in the way that Shale outlined it uh, in his presentation? Well, I, I don't work for the regulated yeah. utility, but I do have a fair bit of, of touch points with them. And as I said earlier, we're looking at ways of balancing what's, what's happening in the marketplace and then looking at where it's best for us to play in the best interest of not only our customers, right, who are going to be our customers for a very long time because microgrids or no microgrids, we still need the grid. And also looking at what our investors want to see us do. We still see a lot of capacity in the large utility scale. I know that some of the, the pre-read I saw said it's drying up in the U.S., but there's still, you know, 35 gigawatts out there in some stage of development, so we're still looking at, you know, playing in that area. But on the distributed side, the risk-adjusted returns for us, the, the existing models don't make a lot of sense with our investors the way mm-hmm. they are. There's a lot of very aggressive assumptions in those models in terms of returns and in terms of growth and the dependence on you know, subsidies and so forth make us a little anxious. But at the same time, we don't think it's going away. And we also look at the fact that technology is still relatively nascent. Um, I often think about computing technology back in the 80s and where it was then. And if you'd told people that, you know, you'd be carrying around a little computer in your hand and looking at your mom and talking to her and all your books would be in there and you could shop and do all that thing, they would have put a net over you and taken you away. So you think about where will PV be? And we look at what's going on in places like RPI and some of the great universities in this country and elsewhere where they're looking at organic PV and they're looking at solar paint and they're looking at other things. So we figure where do we want to play in that? The technology is going to get more and more efficient, less and less expensive. Will we really be an equity investor then or will we still be what we are now, which is a service company? We have a large appliance service business, and servicing um, existing PV makes a lot of sense for us, helping to integrate it in the, in the grid that is still going to be necessary because, as I said before, microgrids, single point of failure, nobody wants that. You need the big grid on the other side. So um, for us, it's, there's a lot of opportunity, a lot of places that we're looking at playing, but um, you know, I, I don't think there's a, a clear you know, one path forward right Absolutely. now. Absolutely, yeah. Howard, you've been in the industry for a long time. You're with PowerLight. You're with AstroPower. You've seen the industry change. Riff off of Diana's vision for what, where the solar industry and distributed generation is headed. I mean, do you see the industry headed down that pathway? Is that something feasibly that you, you see the industry um, achieving? Absolutely. I think the industry is moving towards becoming energy companies rather than cell and panel companies and even system companies, they're migrating to becoming energy companies. And there's a, a battle, particularly in distributed generation, a war, if you will, uh, between companies that to grab the consumer's um, 20-year relationship, dollars per month relationship. And these are companies like Google who bought Nest, companies like Comcast and AT&T uh, who are getting into solar, um, there's uh, security companies, there's, there's electricity companies, utilities, so, and then there's a bunch of industry players that want the same thing. So I think everybody wants that relationship, which is a dollar-per-month long-term relationship to sell energy and energy services. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tangi, is Solar City equipped to manage that relationship and, and achieve that? So you've got this um, long-term relationship with the customer, um, you've got a lot of really interesting uh, 
you know, monitoring capabilities that can potentially hook up, hook up with home energy management systems. You've got um, you know, your, your platform there to do the one-click service for efficiency contractors. How is that going to come together? I mean, do, do you, how are you going to milk that long-term relationship with the customer and do more than just solar? So we're, we're an energy company. And so I think the goal, so our, our focus right now is on um, putting as many megawatts as we can on as many rooftops as we can. Um, and then um, that, that will address, uh, th- that will produce kilowatt hours bit by definition during the day. So that, that's our first focus. Um, and with net metering, um, that's our first focus. Second focus is then being able to say, okay, how do we address power production for the home or power consumption for the home uh, between 6 and 10 p.m.? That's the second focus. Um, and with, whether it's batteries, whether it's the grid, um, all, all, all the above. But batteries, we think, are um, closer than people think on being something which is mainstream. I think the interesting question here is, you know, three or four years from now, we'll be having the same conversation around our batteries mainstream. Um, but so I think that's the first focus between sort of 6 and 10 p.m. And then once we've addressed 6 to 10 p.m., I think the next, the ultimate goal is between 10 and, and, and 8 a.m. Um, and if you can address that, um, then, then I think you're, you're making the grid significantly more stable, um, including from a um, energy independence, defense distributed type concept that I think we should uh, not forget that the uh, distributed grid does provide. So let's turn to incentive programs, to renewable energy targets. Um, are you seeing, for example, large-scale power plant development slow down because of utilities meeting their uh, renewable energy standard targets. Diana, what, what about you? Not really yet. You're not seeing as many of the big giant, you know, 500 plus 300 plus megawatt projects, but you're seeing a lot of 25, 15 to 25 megawatt projects, and we're really good at acquiring those. We diligence them quickly. We can bring them in very quickly. Um, that, that market's still, you know, as far as we're concerned, still alive and well. But what really is interesting is that uh, one of the recent PPAs we just took in and we were able to make work was for less than $50 a megawatt hour. So if our counterparty defaulted, we'd actually do better in the merchant market, which is really the first time we've seen that. And so, you know, you're looking at that in Texas, in that market, we're already, you know, solar is already just with ITC easily competing with a brand new combined cycle plant. And that's one thing you have to always think about. I always get a little, I flinch when people say grid parity because you shouldn't really be comparing a brand new asset to assets that have been in place for 50 years and are fully depreciated and are already just basically pumping out cash, right? You should be looking at what is the marginal cost of the next unit you bring online. And, And solar with ITC alone and, and accelerated depreciation is already doing that in a lot of places in the states and it does it without in a lot of places in the states already and certainly in, in some of the overseas places that we're looking at. Yeah, I would actually um, from our perspective it has slowed down but again our perspective is a perspective that five years ago in the state of California you felt like you were drinking from a fire hose everybody wanted, I mean the utilities everybody wanted to do uh, a deal and, um, and you were talking about 14-cent numbers and trying to figure out whether that was going to make sense for you. Um, today, to us, it feels like, I, I agree with Diana, it feels like a 20-megawatt type market, and we have a couple of those, and there's a couple of bilateral discussions that are happening right now. But we feel that the price of those offtake agreements has reached a point where they're a lot less interesting for us. And so maybe from just an NRG perspective, it slowed down dramatically. And that's why other markets, uh, like the distributed space and the residential space, uh, make a lot more sense for us today. Howard, where are, what's the best market for large-scale power plants today for SunPower? Still California. That's the, the best market. California drove it when there was... Uh, I don't know if it's a feeding frenzy, but when there was a lot of demand for solar, it was driven for big power and it was driven by California. And it's still there. Uh, it's tapered way off. Yeah. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And because the, the, it's been a success, the RPS has been a success. And so there is, a, a, I think, a very strong possibility you'll see California raise the RPS target from 33% to 50%, which could create another uh, spike. Mm-hmm. Uh, for large-scale PV. Scaling but but a- absent that, I would say the bigger market for large-scale PV is outside of the U.S. Mm-hmm. right now. 
It's Where? Like, Can you be more specific? Sure. Uh, China is really interesting. Um, and you're doing low concentration uh, or low concentrator PV there, right? Correct? Yeah, we, we have a, we call it C7. It's a yeah. uh, seven to one concentrator. We, uh, we put together a joint venture with three state-owned enterprises in China, and we just had our first uh, order over 70 megawatts. And you're building there. a production facility there as well? It's already in production. Yeah. We're already making the uh, receivers there. And so that's underway. Hey, just since we're on the, the Chinese picture, I'm curious, what is your sense for the number of projects that are actually being connected to the grid versus projects developed? Um, and, and, and curtailed. <laughs> and curtailed, right. I mean, do you have a sense for... I mean, there's a lot of wind sitting in interconnection queues, a lot of solar sitting in interconnection queues. What is actually generating electricity on the grid in China? Do you have a sense for the, the issues that, that developers are facing there? Uh-huh. Um, I, don't, I don't think that the issue is as large as being portrayed. I think that uh, all, most of the wind and the solar that's being generated is being taken, and there's very aggressive action in terms of building uh, the transmission network in China. So I, I don't see that as an issue. So you haven't had well, any... One of the things that's interesting about China, if, if, for those of you who haven't been there, is that... There's sort of that movie, if you build it, they will come. That's, the, the, uh, that's what they do in China. Yep. They're, they're building lots and lots of renewable generation. They're still building a lot of coal, and they're building a lot of housing <laughs> for, for people to bring the jobs into the cities, and they're just, they're just going. And so there could be you know, inflection points and, and many disruptions along the way. But they're, they're, just, they're just making it happen. That's the philosophy there. So it's pretty interesting. It's a really valid point. I had never seen anything like that, was where Hanergy, for example, built a three-gigawatt hydro facility completely with no contract, no commitment to be able to sell the offtake. And I toured that facility, and it's, it's gold-plated. This is an amazing plant. And they did it, and they're making money with it. And that's, it really does happen that way there. But anybody, again, who's spent any time there knows they're not only going to have to achieve the kind of aggressive growth in you know, demand that's required there, but they are going to have to do something about the air. It's, there's so much coal generation and so much really polluting coal generation that it's a critical issue there. Mm. A lot of expats won't keep their families in, in China anymore. It's just really, really difficult to live. So let's go from large-scale international development to small-scale stuff. Tongi, uh, Solar City just made a small investment in this off-grid solar company in Tanzania yeah. called Off-Grid Electric. Yep. Um, they're doing solar services uh, for the solar lighting market. Um, still extremely small, but growing because of mobile money, because fast. of LED lights. Um, what did you see in the company, and what do you see in, in, in the small-scale, distributed, off-grid market internationally? Yeah, so it, it, it's a fascinating question. So one, one of the grand analogies here is, is cell phones, right? Um, and if you look at, uh, what, what, there's, there's clear analogy here, which is um, in the U.S., um, you know, cell phones took off, and I think one of the points you were making, um, Diana, um, the technology became increasingly sophisticated, um, and, and penetration rose, um, and, uh, and, and you know, the price points are reasonably high, um, and, and these are long-term contracts with securitization, financing, et cetera, et cetera. That's clearly a market that's doing incredibly well. Um, and uh, the other market that's doing incredibly well in cell phones, or did incredibly well in cell phones, was um, uh, underdeveloped markets with no grid at that point, right? Um, and um, what, what you're able to provide is... Um, through providing power makes a massive, massive difference to, um, to people's lives. And by, the, by definition, creates massive economic activity. Um, just the, the fact of um, you know, what, what is the price of being able to, whether it's communication or, or whatever it is, being able to do your homework at night, whether it's being able to uh, figure out the price of goods in the market next door, uh, access Wikipedia, wh whatever um, approach you have to energy and communication. Um, so those are things that uh, create massive economic growth, uh, high return on GDP, um, and as a consequence are, are very, very attractive IRs. We turned to questions from the audience here, and we had some microphone issues. But the first question that came up was one that seems to come up from everybody these days. 
how are the companies managing the poles and the wires and the power plants, the utilities, going to deal with distributed generation? So, well, it, it kind of ties back to what I said earlier. We're having these conversations in very serious ways, and we're spending very serious amounts of time and dollars on figuring out how not to avoid solar, not to fight solar, not to not to say, oh, this is never going to happen. We don't have our heads in the sand. It's, I mean, look at New Jersey. My goodness, you wouldn't expect that kind of solar impact, and a lot of that's there because of the, you know, the actions of our company. So we're trying to figure out ways to make sure we're positioned to make this transition smooth because we still do want to serve our customers appropriately. But at the same time, I mean, we're in the business to make money too, but to do it in a long-term responsible way. So we're looking at every aspect of this business all along the value chain and playing quietly in some places where you wouldn't expect us to be and then very you know, prominently in areas where you'd expect us to, to be playing, like investing in um, the, the actual utility-scale solar and some modest investment in, in the distributed solar. But it, you can't know 100% how this model is going to unfold relative to how this, you know, the cell phone model is unfolded. All you know is that this technology is going to be game-changing, and it hasn't gotten there yet. And you have to be somewhere where you can be able to move quickly to take advantage of that. And in the end, it is a power technology, and we are the ones that know how to manage power technologies. Unless we figure out a way to distribute it without wires, we're still going to be there as the utilities, as the, the experts, and the ones who know how to make this you know, happen smoothly and effectively. So that, That's something that I was going to say, was that you know, electricity is physical, it's not digital. And you're, you know, th- there is a great analogy between telecom and the network and, and electricity in the network. We need the network. You know, PV needs the network. And um, to think that there's going to be this death spiral, I don't see that happening. Um, and uh, granted, we may be taking some of the, the demand growth, but we still need to support the network. So to, to make that happen, there needs to be an equitable solution where the uh, transmission distribution companies, the utilities are compensated for the, for the value that they're providing. And it needs to be done fairly. I've had solar on my roof in California for 15 years, net metered. I've paid PG&E four bucks a month for 15 years. Now, that's not sustainable. I mean, if every customer, that's their argument, if every customer had that. But net metering is an incredibly value, valuable, pioneering policy instrument to get us from point A to point B. Now we have to go from point B to point C and figure out a way to coexist with the utilities to enable solar to happen, just like in telecom. I think it's a really good question. But, but I think the other, there's, there still is another opportunity where the analogy exists. I mean, if you look at back at Africa, as, um, you know, in California, the grid capacity is 75,000 megawatts. In Kenya, 1,500 megawatts. The, um, you know, when you, there's a need that must be satisfied. You know, they have a, a, a growing population. I think it's 600 million uh, population growth by 2020. So there's a need that needs to be satisfied, and it will be satisfied with the most cost-effective approach. And the most cost-effective approach is not to build out transmission lines in a central station um, power generating system. It's, it is going to be providing those folks with solar power. And so I think that's why the analogy also applies to, to a lot of markets outside of the U.S. market. Yeah. If, if I may, the other, the other reason I like the analogy with cell phones is if you look at market structures, um, especially in Europe, you had one fixed-line provider, uh, which ultimately became typically a successful mobile cell provider, but you also had one or two um, startups who then became mainstream. So whether it's SFR um, in, in, in France, whether it's Vodafone in a bunch of, the UK, a bunch of countries, uh, including Germany, um, uh, you just have these big, big, big um, companies that started um, from a non-traditional background um, and did really well. And, and I think the, the point is valid, which is T-Mobile um, in, in Germany, which is Deutsche Telekom, um, has done extraordinarily well out of being the, the fixed-line incumbent and become mobile. So I think it's very, very similar here, which is um, we're going to have a very successful, to your point, um, uh, utilities that are you know, going to solar, and you'll also have a, a number of very, very successful um, companies that did not have a uh, wiring background and still do extremely well. One of the other big challenges for us, um, I know, and I love the cell phone analogy, and I use it all the time because it gets you thinking about this sort of dis- this, this disruptive technology, which is not a bad thing. Um, but one of the bigger challenges for us that wasn't there for the telephones, lifeline commodity, 
and the infrastructure in this country is aging. It's in trouble. Right. It needs a lot of capital. And we have a large number of gigawatts of very old coal-generating stations that are going to be shut down. So there's going to be both a need for a tremendous capital deployed in dispatchable um, generation technology and also a lot of capital that needs to go into this aging infrastructure. Anyone who's, who was in New Jersey during the last two storms will know it was horrifying. It was terrible. There were people who didn't have power for weeks on end. And this is, this is a life-threatening situation. And so we've got this really complex situation that is going to become very critical very fast in this country, and we're going to all have to work together to figure out how to get us through that in a way that people make money, but more importantly, the whole country is healthy when totally this agree. is all done with. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think the, the, whether it's a freak weather pattern or whether it's a, um, um, a deliberate, deliberate or not deliberate accident, um, clearly having the ability to have distributed solar, I think it's clearly it makes the grid a um, significantly more stable uh, from an energy security perspective. Mm-hmm. So we could go on, um, but we only have a few minutes left here. So maybe we could wrap up with each of you predicting what you know, the biggest event of 2014 will be for solar. You know, if we come back here next year, what do you think, what kind of surprises do you think we'll see this industry, either from a technology perspective, from a mergers and acquisition perspective? Um, is, is there anything that you see exciting in the industry that we'll be talking about next year? In 2014, I don't, I don't see anything that's really going to be that amazing yeah. um, in the solar space. I, I think the one thing that's <laughs> starting to happen is um, you're starting to see people pay a lot more attention to climate change. And you're seeing a lot of momentum behind what's happening right now with the UN effort. And I think that uh, what we're witnessing and recognizing is that at the sea level now, when you talk to corporations and you ask them what their top five risks are, um, fuel scarcity and carbon pricing are starting to, to make that top five. And I think that will also stimulate the opportunity for a lot of what we're trying to do here because there's, you know, we are a really interesting risk mitigation factor um, from that perspective. I'm with Tom. I, mean, I think the, uh, um, this, we'll see probably more vertical integration. Uh, we'll see... Um, the, the, um, the, the one thing I sort of put out there is I think we're going to start thinking. So right now, you know, people talk about solar. It's typically in megawatts. That's, the, that's kind of the, the metric mm-hmm. that people use. Um, I think hopefully by the end of 2014, then we'll start using gigawatts as the commodity, and we'll start thinking as 0.5 gigawatts as opposed to 500 megawatts because um, we will have companies that will be really doing sort of um, gigawatts, you know, people on, on this panel for sure, um, gigawatts of, uh, of volume. And just briefly... 2014, the year of the gigawatt. And then just briefly, because I didn't get to ask this question, how do you see net metering battles playing out? It's a great question. Look, for me, for me net metering is, a, is an engineering debate. You've got... Um, the, the key constituent here is the, is, the, is the consumer. The consumer needs to pay... Uh, the, consum- the consumer needs to have secure, I think it's really, really important, secure, secure power um, that is energy independent, that is clean, um, that's what the consumer needs. And so then the question becomes, how do we deliver that? How do we, you know, the, the, the uh, uh, business community, regulators, government, uh, provide the consumer with that, um, uh, with, with, with that power? Um, and so once you've said that, it becomes an engineering debate around, okay, how do we, what is the relevant engineering solution, whether it's microgrids, whether it's energy, whether it's backup power, whether it's the grid, um, and um, at the lowest cost. And so once we, there's an engineering question that comes up with what is the answer, and I think we've, we've uh, we have the, the resources to be able to have that debate. Um, we should be able to uh, conclude on uh, the way forward. But it's, it's an engineering debate. It's not a shareholder versus shareholder debate. Well, the, the things that we hear the most often, the most three most important things to customers when it comes right down to it is cost, cost, cost. That's what matters to them. They care about the renewable, but in the end, the thing that we get the most pushback on is how expensive everything is. So we're going to have to focus on making sure we bring the solutions in in the most responsible way that understands that we're still you know, a society that's capitalist foundation and we need to make money in a, you know, in, in a, in a healthy way and continue to grow. So I agree um, absolutely with what you're saying, that people are focusing more on the risk side of, of some of these. We are, too, and what's going to happen with carbon and so forth. 
But in the end, um, I think we're going to see more uh, sort of disruption with some of the many players who are in the distributed space. A lot of them are going to go in, and have the same sort of um, experiences we saw on the supply side. There will be some consolidation and some, mm-hmm. some uh, business models fall apart this year, and we'll have some more clarity around the ITC, you know, what it's going to look like uh, post-2016 and so forth. But other than that, I, I agree. I don't think we'll see anything too or shattering this in this next year. Apart from 100% growth, but that's it. You know, yeah. No big deal. 100% of a small number, though. I agree. I think over the next 12 months, you're going to see um, demand is going to exceed supply globally for PV, and you're going to see shortages of product. You're going to see pricing yeah. going up for PV panels. Um, and it's like, what? how did that happen? We had a glut 18 months ago. Now we're in the shortage period. And then what's going to happen, so a lot of companies are wondering, should they expand? Should they build more factories? We are. We're, we're, we're going to build another. We announced another 300-megawatt factory. Uh, plus, 300 megawatt plus. Um, and, and then we're going to be here in 2015 in the spring, and, and the ITC is going to be on our mind big time. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be this huge surge of demand for DG and for power plants, for that matter, in the United States. And then we're going to have to figure out as an industry, not figure out, we're going to have to demand that uh, Washington uh, have the political will to either extend the ITC or have a soft ramp or at least have a level playing field. I'm all for, we are all for uh, removing the ITC as long as all other energy subsidies go away that are embedded in the tax code for the last 100 years. That's not going to happen. So let's just keep competing on a level playing field. So we have to ensure that that happens in the U.S. Otherwise, all of the the market and the technology innovation is going to be outside of this country. All right, let's thank our panel. We are out of time, so uh, really appreciate you guys being here. That wraps up our show for the week. Sorry again for not having the gang here. I promise we'll make it up to you, and we will have a full show next week to chat about all the happenings in clean tech. In the meantime, head over to greentechmedia.com for the latest clean tech news. For the Energy Gang, I'm Stephen Lacey. I will catch you next week. (laughs) 